And we're going to read verses 16 to 18 soon. But, uh, you know, one of the things about me, I, I like history. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge history buff in the sense that I, I constantly pour over history. But I do like to, to read history and learn about history. And probably one of the, the big events that I really like the most is the story of World War II. I think the uh, the valor and the courage and the self and the sacrifice that we we see in the men and women of that time is just remarkable to me, and um, and so I really like to to look at World War II and study it a little bit, and and one of the things probably is the turning point of that war is is D Day, on June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces they stormed the beaches of Normandy, and that was sort of the beginning of the end for for Hitler and uh, the Nazis. But one of the things I think is less well known about D-Day is all the subterfuge that was going on. The subterfuge meaning all the, uh, the, the battles of the mind and the chess games that were being played on between the Axis and the, and the Allies, the, the, Nazis, the Nazis and the Allies. And so one of the things that they did is they realized, the Allies realized, that when they had this big buildup of troops, that's not going to be unnoticed by the Germans. These Nazis are going to realize that something's going to happen because they have all these soldiers collecting on uh, on the beaches of Britain, ready to storm Europe, and so they realized they had to do something to throw Germany off the off the scent of what was going to happen. So they leaked a plan called Operation Fortitude, and this plan wasn't a real plan; it was a fake. But that plan in Operation Fortitude said that there were going to be two um, uh, two points where they where they land. One was in France, but other than in Normandy, and then the other one was way up north in Norway. And what this did is it, it helped to divide the troops. You see, if Germany knew that everyone was going to land on the beaches of Normandy, then they could have reinforced that group and the Allies would have never taken the beach. But by being able to separate the troops, then now Germany had to fortify up in Norway as well as down in France. And so that was one advantage of it. The other advantage of the plan was in releasing this plan, they said, well, we're going to pretend to land in in France, but that's really not the place we're going to land. Really, it's just going to be a ruse, and we're still going to land up in Norway. Well, when then they started to land in the beaches of Normandy, the Germans thought, oh, we've seen this. This is their plan. They're not really going to come here. Let's wait for up up in Norway. And so it delayed sending the reinforcements. And so this subterfuge, these, this sneakiness, these kind of lies that were being set out or false information being set, sent out was, was, uh, had a huge impact in winning that, that battle and then obviously uh, led to the victory of the war. Otherwise, we'd probably all be speaking German right now. And so I, I've always thought that was a neat thing. But what's interesting, I thought about it some more, and I think that idea of the subterfuge, the misleading information is something I think the enemy does with you and I. I think he is. He's sent out to us false information so that instead of spending the time battling the real enemy, we end up fighting an enemy that isn't there and leaving us vulnerable for where the real the, the enemy really doesn't want to attack us. So I think the heart of this plan is based on the idea that we have been given or we have as Christians, we have two natures. You might have heard this theology in the sense that there's a good me and a bad me. And these two me's are constantly in battle and, and whichever one I feed is going to win. And so I need to make sure I feed the good me so we can overpower the, the, the bad me. And, you know, that it's interesting, an illustration and so forth, but I think it's, it's rooted in really poor theology. 
You see, more than just making Christians, you know, schizophrenics with multiple personalities, what it ends up leading us to do is we now put it on ourselves to try to uh, constrain or subdue this old, this bad me, this, this evil me. And so we end up going to things such as the rules and the laws and the regulations and so forth, saying, well, if I don't do this, then I won't feed the bad me and he'll be subdued and I'll be okay and I'll be feeding the good me. But what we end up doing as a result now is we take this glorious new covenant, this glorious thing called Christianity of life in Christ, and we try to reduce it to an old covenant system. What I mean by that is we try to live by rules and regulations which the old covenant was written on, but we're in a whole different covenant and it's never going to work. It's not supposed to work that way. It's not supposed to happen that way. So what we want to do today is we kind of want to look at, I think, some of where this deception comes from, but then what's God's answer? What is he saying uh, opposed to this? So we're going to read the passage here in Galatians 5, verse 16 to 18. And you can read along with me if you want. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Father, we look forward to this evening and what you want to say to us about this aspect of this battle going on and what the real battle is all about. I pray, Father, that you would give us the, the mind to understand it, that your spirit would speak to us and encourage us, and that we would see the power and the freedom of what you have done on that cross, what we've been set free from in order to be what we can be set free to, what we can really experience. So I ask you, Jesus, to live in me right now, to speak through me, but also to live in each person here and make your truth real to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So to start, what I want to do is I want to give us a a brief background on the book of Galatians. Because that will give us a context in terms of what Paul is talking about in this passage. The book of Galatians is written to the churches in Galatia. It's It's a province of the Roman Empire at the time in what is now known as Turkey. And these churches were founded by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And so Paul would go through with Barnabas and they'd show up to a place. And they'd begin to preach and share the gospel. And that would upset some people. Namely, the Jews and the Jewish leaders who felt that their power and their control was being upset and taken away from them. And so they went to great lengths to try to to quiet Paul, to shut him up. And so they would sometimes beat him or chase him out of town or deny him because this message that Paul was, was speaking was a threat to them. And so they would chase Paul out of town. Unfortunately for them, there would be a group of people who didn't listen to them but listened to Paul instead. There would be a new church formed in each little town that Paul was in. Well, eventually, you know, the enemy doesn't stop there. You know, he tried to prevent people from receiving Christ. But the moment they do, he doesn't give up on them. How many people have noticed that in their own lives? That even after you become saved, the enemy still comes after you. Well, in the same way, these new Christians, the enemy kept coming after them. But he had to take a different course of action now. You see, before, he would deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was enough for some people to say no. But these people have accepted that Jesus is the Messiah. So the enemy can't come and deny that Christ is the Messiah. It won't work. So what he ends up doing is he takes a different tack. And he comes up to them and he says, through these Judaizers, he says to these new Christians, yet Paul's right, 
Jesus is the Messiah, but Paul's only giving you part of the story. See, Paul only knows part of the story. He doesn't know the rest. Here's the rest. Now that you have Jesus as your Messiah, now you have that. Now you get to continue with the law. Isn't that exciting? You continue to follow all the rules and the regulations and act like Jews, live like Jews. Nothing's really different. We just, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. And away they went. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to, in that case, they're specifically take the new covenant and shoehorn it or fit it back into the old covenant. But it's never going to work that way. So Paul, upon hearing this, he writes to these, these churches in Galatia with the book that we have, the letter to the church of Galatia, the, the Galatians. And so in here, he opens up with one of his strongest rebukes of all his letters. He says, how is it that you're so quickly walking away from Jesus for a different gospel? Notice he doesn't say you're walking away from a theology or a doctrine or a way of things. He's not talking about that. He says, what you've abandoned is the very person of Jesus Christ for a different doctrine. How could you do that? Don't you understand what's happened? You see, at salvation, what Don was saying earlier, at salvation, this once and for all aspect took place. That you and I, the believer, we were placed into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into Him. And as a result, what happened to Him on that cross happened to us. We were crucified with Him. I know of no more liberating truth than that. Even more than being forgiven. Because you see, when I died, you know who I was set free from? Me. And that's what I needed freedom from. So I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Him. And a brand new creation was raised up. Holy, righteous, perfect, accepted, completely loved, as we talked about this morning. That new creation, that new person. You see, as Paul puts it, we have in the verse, Galatians 2.20, I, that old sinner, that unacceptable person was crucified with Christ. And I, that old sinner, no longer lives. But Christ now lives in me. The new person, this new creation. That's the, that's what's so wonderful about this cross, the, the salvation. And so at salvation, we don't gain a new nature alongside of the old. We've exchanged it. We trade in the old to receive a new, something different, something brand new. And so that's what makes the second half of Galatians 2.20 so special. Paul goes on to say, the life that I now live today... In this body, right here in this church, the life we all live, we live by faith. We're trusting, we're depending, we're relying upon the life of Jesus Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so that's that's what he's been talking about prior to we turn to chapter 5. And so when he gets here to chapter 5 and verse 16, what he's speaking about now is why instead of the law, we find life in Christ is what's going to provide victory over temptation. That we don't go back to the old system of performing based on the rules and regulations. So let's look again at verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. When he's saying there, you will not, he's given us a guarantee. As long as you're walking by the Spirit, you will not, I guarantee, carry out the desires of the flesh. It's sort of like saying, if you have two cars, if you're driving car A, I guarantee you. Because you can't do it. I guarantee you, you won't be driving car B. Because as much as talented as you may be, you can't drive two cars at once. Right, Andrew? You can't do it. 
Right? So that's kind of the idea here. As long as you're walking by the Spirit, you will not guarantee fulfill the desires of the flesh. What's interesting here, the word desire here that he's attributing to the flesh, the word desire is, is something that has the meaning of being ill, being of malice, being rotten. That's what he's describing. That's what he's attaching to the desires of the flesh. Because that's what the flesh desires. It desires sin. It desires something negative, something wrong. And we call that the flesh. But I think it's important for us to understand this term flesh. Because it really will shade your understanding about this idea of having two natures or not. And, And I think there's been a lot of confusion as a result of translating this word flesh. The, the Greek word here is sarks, and it literally just means flesh. It's your flesh and bones. That's, that's sort of what it's talking about. Unfortunately, the NIV Bible, in this case here with this word, they've translated the word flesh to be sinful nature. And they've gone beyond translating, they've begun interpreting, because what they're doing is they look around, they say, well, we still sin. We're still making mistakes. That's got to be coming from somewhere. That must be my old nature still around. That must be who I still am. And so I have this sinful nature. And so they've translated it as a sinful nature. The problem is now, 50% of all Bibles are NIV. And then about 25% of the other ones are all adaptations of the NIV Bible. So most Christians walk around going, well, it's in my Bible that I have a sinful nature. Well, the problem is it's a mistranslation. And so there's so much confusion. And I think this is the enemy's plan. To think now you need to battle yourself. You need to battle your sinful nature. And you need to subdue it. You need to control your nature. Well, how do we do that? How do we, how do we put ourselves to death? I don't know how to even do that. I mean, I think it's interesting. The crucifixion is the one way you can't kill yourself with. Have you ever thought about that? It's okay if you don't. I, I, I'm a bit morbid, I guess, that way. But, but, you know, you can kill yourself in all kinds of different ways. Throw yourself off a, a you know a, a bridge or hang yourself, shoot yourself, cut yourself, poison yourself, but you can't crucify yourself. Picture it. You get one hand in, you get your feet in. Now what do you do? Throw the hammer up and hope you get lucky. You can't do it. And I think that was God's way of saying He's not asking us to crucify ourselves. You see, He's not asking us to do it because He's already done it. As we sang once. For all. Remember the verse that we, that we got read in Romans 6, 10 and 11? Just as Jesus died once for all, even so, the same way, count or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Meaning, how many times do we need to die to sin? Once for all. That's, that's wonderful. It's glorious. But unfortunately, we haven't fully understood what this flesh term means. And so we think it's sinful nature and it causes all kinds of problems. So let's see if we can understand it. And I think verse 17 is going to help us. So let's read verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And if you have an NIV Bible and you see the word sinful nature or your Bible uses sinful nature, I would really encourage you grab a pen and scratch out sinful nature and write flesh over there. Because that's really what it's saying. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Alright, to help understand this verse, I'm going to have a diagram here. It's going on the screen. And the first thing I want you to see, we're going to introduce ourselves to there's different characters here in this verse. And so the first character that we discover is the flesh. So go ahead and, and uh, advance the slide. 
We're almost there. Just imagine on the slide, it says flesh. All right. And, you know, understand this term flesh, you know, it's often it's used many times throughout the book of Galatians here and um, particularly in chapter five. Um, I think another passage where we see it, but he uses a different name, is it shows up in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And in Romans, he's using the term sin. Oh, that's not it. That's not it. It'll come. You'll see it. It just says flesh. It's really simple. You won't miss it. And so here in, in Romans, Paul uses this term called sin. But here in Galatians, he's referring to something called the flesh. And so I think we could, we could change those two. There you go. They're, they're synonymous in this sense. And so we have this thing called the flesh. We might think of it as indwelling sin. Have you ever heard of that term? That's where it'd be coming from. And so here he's talking about this thing called flesh. It's not who you are. That's really important that we understand it. It's not what you are, but it's something inside of you that's causing you problems. A great way to think of the flesh or sin is think of a, of a sliver. Have you ever had a sliver? Yeah, they're not fun, right? Just little things in there, but they're in you. And they cause you all kinds of pain and discomfort and annoyance. But is that sliver actually you? No. It's not in you. It's a foreign entity that's residing in you. Well, much in the same way, that's what the sin or the flesh is. It's a foreign object. It's a foreign agent that has kind of infiltrated us and it's residing within us and it's causing us trouble, causing us problems. Now, we need to fill out the picture here a little bit. They don't make appearances in this verse, but there's a couple other characters that I think are associated with the flesh that are worth pointing out, and that's Satan and the world. And, you know, many ways you've heard of the Trinity. Well, this is kind of the unholy Trinity. These three together are, are acting in unison to, to sabotage us. And so, you know, we, we need to understand that one doesn't operate in isolation. So the first character we see here is really the flesh. The second character we see in verse 17 is the spirit. So you can see on the screen here, we'll put the spirit up there. Now, is the spirit the flesh? No, right? They're two different things. And it, it will come. There we go. And, and you know what? We gotta be careful. We, we try, I think, to understand God. We compartmentalize God. But the reality is, you can't divide up God. He's three unique people that are one. And so whenever you have the Spirit, you have the Father and the Son. Do you realize what that means? If the Spirit lives in you, who else lives in you? Jesus lives in you. And who else lives in you? God lives in you. Right? It's not like we got one third of the Trinity. The whole being of God is inside of you. And that's the other thing. It's not even you get a part of God. You get all of God residing inside of you. You're a full house. Right? And so here we have the, the Spirit, the Father and the Son all working together. And then we have the third character. And the third character in this play is who? It's you and I. Now, are you the Spirit? Are you God? No, sometimes we think we're God, right? But we're not God. But neither are you the flesh. That's not who you are. Instead, you are this independent character. Independent in the sense that you're different from the flesh and you're different from the spirit. So how do these different characters interact? Well, let's first focus in on how the flesh interacts with you and I. So go ahead and advance the slide here. 
And you see, the first thing I want you to see here is that the flesh, what it's trying to do is it's trying to tempt you. Or if I could put it a different way that I think might shed some light into it, it's trying to lure us. How many fishermen are here today? We're all out fishing, right? I'm not much of a fisherman. I've gone fishing a couple of times, but I'm not, I'm not a huge fisherman. But, you know, I know the basic principles of fishermen, right, of fishing. Basically, you get a fishing rod, and on that end of the rod with a hook, you place some bait. And that bait, then, is supposed to entice the fish, right? The whole point of the bait is a big ruse. You're trying to show off to this fish, hey, take a bite. I've got something wonderful here for you, and it's going to be great. And if you eat it, you'll be wonderful, and you'll be healthy and full, and, and this will be good stuff. And so we trick the fish into biting it, and when they bite into it, what do they discover? They're trapped, right? they got a big hook in their mouth. They're not going anywhere anymore. And so that's, I think that's what the, that's what the flesh and sin is trying to do. It's throwing out some bait for you and I. It's thrown out for you and I a way to get life met. It's thrown out to you and I a way for our get, to get our needs satisfied. So for example, feeling sad, need a little pick-me-up. Well, here's a way. Just go have that third scoop of ice cream. That second piece of cake this hour. Go and, go and spend some more money at the shopping mall. And, and that will make you feel better about yourself. And you know what? It will for a very brief time. And then what are we left with? We got the hook in our mouth. But you see, what the flesh offers and what it delivers are two very different things. It offers life, but what does it always deliver? Death. And so we experience misery. We experience emptiness. Maybe even more empty than when we were before. And so that's what the sin, that's what the flesh is trying to do. It's luring us, it's tempting us into trying to find life, but ultimately, it will, you'll never find it. And you see, what you have to understand about the flesh, the flesh isn't necessarily immoral. I think that's one of the problems I have with the term sinful nature. It implies morality. That as long as you're living a moral life, hey, you're okay. But if you're living an immoral life, well, that's clearly sin. But the reality is the opposite. You see, really what the flesh is, its goal is to do anything it can to keep you or distract you from Jesus. And for some people, don't get me wrong, immorality is the best way to go. Drugs and alcohol and prostitution and so forth, that would be the way to get somebody off, off of Jesus. But you see, there's a whole other group of people where the best way to keep them from Jesus is religion. Pharisees. Right? I mean, the whole thing about the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, they were the most moral, upright people you'd ever want. You'd want Pharisees as neighbors because they would help you and look after you. They were good people on the outside. But Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. There was no life there. And you see, for them, their religion and their spirit of religion and their desire for religion is what actually kept them from Jesus. Well, who led them down that path? None other but this unholy trinity. The flesh and the world and Satan. That was their way of trying to keep that person, the Pharisee, away from Christ. And for some it worked. For others it worked for a while, like the Apostle Paul. 
until eventually he found Jesus. But you see, that's essentially what the flesh is trying to do, is trying to lead you away from Jesus. And what begins to happen is if when we bite onto that bait, when we, when we follow the leading of the flesh, we'll begin to carry out the deeds of the flesh. So go ahead and advance the slide here. And the deeds of the flesh really are just listed. He goes on in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 5 here. And we could, you know, loosely summarize them as the sexual sins or maybe lifestyle sins or relational sins. But we begin to see it. We've put into the debate. And you know what? It doesn't matter how mature you are, how long you've been a Christian. We're all susceptible to the wiles of the flesh because it's not going anywhere. It's with us to the day we leave this body, this earth suit. Because it's in the body. That's why I think Paul calls it the flesh. Because it's in the flesh. It's in our bodies. And it's coming after us. It's waging this war against us. And when we bite into it, when we take the bait, we become instruments of the flesh. And we produce death and always death. Well, let's contrast now with the Spirit. And what the Spirit's trying to do. So go ahead and advance the slide here. What the Spirit's trying to do, He's trying to lead you. Do you notice that word leading? He's not trying to dominate you. He's not trying to control you. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that He set you free. Do you realize that? He didn't set you free so you would obey Him. I wish He did sometimes. For me personally. But that wasn't what He wanted. He wanted you and I to be free. Completely free. And out of that freedom, now we get to love Him. And in loving Him, we'll obey Him. But it isn't out of obligation. It's a response to the love and the freedom that He's given to us. So He's not looking to control us. He's looking to lead us. To guide us. And what He's trying to guide us into is to trust Him. To walk with Him. To rely upon Him. To discover the life that He has for you and I. And so as that begins to happen, we begin to express the very character of Jesus. Look what we have in Galatians 2.20 again. It's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. You see, that's what this world needs. It needs more of Jesus in you and I. That's what this world is desperately crying out for. They don't realize it, but that's what we all need. And so you and I get to be vessels of this as he leads us, as he guides us to our families, to our friends, to our workplaces. We get to be the person of Jesus to those people, regardless of whether they have a relationship with Jesus or not. We get to share Jesus. And what ends up happening, if you want to advance the slide, we get to then fulfill or or produce or not produce, bear the fruit of the spirit. Now, this cannot be understated. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the Christian. That's so important. It's not your fruit to produce. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's Jesus Himself, the Holy Spirit and God, producing this fruit through you and I as we rely upon Him. And we begin to experience the love and the joy and the the peace and the patience and the kindness and the gentleness and the faithfulness. That life of Christ. The characteristics of Jesus begin to come out. And that's what we begin to discover. And that's what we begin to see. Is this good? So let's look at verse 17 again. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another that you may not do the things that you please. 
Let's understand us now. May not do the things that you please. Well, what does that mean? You see, if I really have two natures, if there is an evil me and a good me, then what would I desire personally? What do I want to do? I'd want to sin. And so we read that verse that God is actually battling me so that I don't sin. But that's not what he's saying. You see, here's the reality. As a Christian, you don't want to sin. Deep down, your desire is not to sin. You know how I know? Think about how you felt the last time you sinned. Did you boast about it? Call up your best friend on the phone. Hey, I want you to know that I just swore at somebody. And I'm so excited about that. Post it on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, let all the people know. You're so excited about your sin. Is that how you feel? No. How do you feel? Bad, guilty, miserable, wish you didn't do it. You're beginning to express the true desire of your heart. Think about that famous passage in Romans 7 where Paul talks about, I do not do the things that I want, but I do the very things that I don't want. What's Paul's desire? It's not to sin. Is he sinning? Sure he is. But it's not what he wants. And that describes the believer. You and I have new desires. You and I want to do good. In fact, if we look at that word here, please, it could be translated, if we want, that you may not do the things that you desire. Similar to what we had in verse 16. Except here's the difference. They're two different words. Whereas verse 16, describing the desires of the flesh, is a word that is, has ill consequences or, or ill uh, negative uh, a, an attitude towards it. The verse 17, that's translated in, in most translations, please, or we could translate as desire, is not the same. It has no negative connotation whatsoever. And so we desire good. We desire right. Go ahead and advance the slide. You see, what we've become is these new creations. See, what God has done, in, in a simple way of putting it, He's given you and I a heart transplant. Isn't that good? We don't need a new heart. He doesn't need to create within us a, a new heart. He's already given us a new heart. That's what Ezekiel 36 tells us. That He's going to remove that heart of stone, that old, evil, wicked heart, in order to give us a new heart. That's what happened on the cross. That's the new self and the old self. So we have a new heart with new desires. Ephesians 4.24 says that you were to put on the new self created in the likeness of God. Think about that for a minute. This new heart, this new person that you are, this new nature is created in the likeness of God. It goes on, it says, in righteousness, in holiness, and in truth. That's who you are. Your desire is to do good. Now, I realize when sin comes knocking on your door, you may feel differently. But what you feel and what you desire are two very different things. And so this new creation, this 100% loved and accepted and approved with holy desires, that's who we are. And we want to do good. But there's a battle going on. So let's see the battle. Who's the battle between? 
For the flesh is in opposition to the spirit and the spirit is in opposition to the flesh. Go ahead and advance aside there. See, the battle is between the spirit and the flesh. It's not between you and the flesh. You see, that's that's the mistake we make whenever we return to an old covenant system. Whenever we return to the law and rules and regulations, we try to fight the battle in our own strength. I know how to overcome the flesh and sin. I will give it some law. Problem is, it never works. If anything, what it does is it makes sin worse. You see, the battle is God's to fight. And what he's looking for is for him to battle the flesh. And we trust him with that and take his side rather than trying to intervene and fight on on our own behalf. You know, this is pointed out to me. and I think it's pretty, pretty impressive that what does this say about your value to God? Or what even what does it say about your value to the enemy? That he doesn't just give up on you and doesn't care. He's still coming after you. Because he realizes the threat you are to him. He realizes the threat that you are because of the life of Christ within you. So he's doing everything he can to disrupt, to block, to deny you from experiencing his power in his life. But God loves you enough to continue the fight. Continue to battle so that even though the flesh is trying to prevent you from doing what you want, the Spirit of God will lead you into doing what you want, lead you into experiencing your desires. And so the fight is Jesus' fight. Let's let's go back to Romans 6, what we read, right? Jesus died once and for all, verse 11. Even so, in the same way, reckon, count it as a fact that you're dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, therefore, don't let sin or the flesh reign in your mortal body, that you would obey its lusts. That you would obey its desires. That's debate. Verse 13, instead, present yourself to God as alive from the dead. Don't go on presenting yourself to sin anymore. Present yourself to God. I think that's really the application of it. That's to be our response to all this. And Paul lays it out for us in verse 18. So verse 18 is going to be our application for this evening. He says, verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You don't need to go back to the old covenant to control the flesh. You don't need the rules and regulations. You just need to be led by Jesus. It's that, I mean, it sounds that simple. It's not that simple. It's hard in practice. But it's that simple in concept that we need to trust Jesus. We need to continually, moment by moment, as we sang, rely upon the life of Jesus. Let me let me illustrate it to you this way. I'm not great with directions. I might be the only guy that admits that, but I'm not great with directions. Don was was quizzing me how I came here this morning and, and I just broke down. I said, listen, I just followed the GPS. I just punch it in there and I follow it and I, you know, do a few U-turns and here I am. That sort of thing. And, and you know, whenever I travel somewhere, I really, there's a couple options I can take. One option, if, you know, I can print out directions or try to use a GPS or something like that. The other option, if I'm afforded to that, I could get somebody who knows where I'm going to, drive, to ride with me. 
You know what I mean by that? So if I wanted to maybe kind of tour around the, 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 the area here in, uh, in Kirkfield and maybe go and visit some of your locks and so forth, well, I could have, you know, printed out some directions and some sites and Viard and I could have driven, driven around the area by ourselves or we could have invited Don and Miriam with us. And then who could tell me turn by turn directions? Don could have. That's essentially what Jesus is asking for. See, you and I, we could just try to follow turn-by-turn directions, which are the rules and regulations of life. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Don't, you know, hit people, don't kick people, that sort of thing. We could try to do that. Or we could go through life with Jesus beside us. We could go through life resting and relying upon the living Christ to lead us today. That's what's so hard about it. You see, the other one is easy. i got a checklist to follow. This one over here requires faith. Stepping out, okay, Jesus, I'm thinking you're saying to love them this way. I think you're saying that I'm to get up and go and give my spouse a hug. We're going and wash the dishes for them. So here we go, Lord. And I'm trusting Jesus moment by moment, step by step, to live in me. And when that's happening, as he says in verse 16, I won't fulfill the lust of the spirit of the flesh. It won't happen. Because who's living through me? Jesus. And he's overcome the flesh on my behalf. So how do we do that? How do we walk with Jesus? Here's the simplest way I can sum it up for you and I. Is what consumes you and I? What consumes our thinking? What dominates how we we look at life? You see, the flesh basically is trying to get you to do it all on your own. That you got to solve this problem. You got to figure out how to how to pay the bills. You got to figure out how to fix this relationship problem. You got to figure out how to build this project. You got to figure out how to fix this issue at work. It's you, you, you on your own. But walking with the Spirit, walking with Jesus means being consumed with Jesus. Not at the expense of all those issues in life, but inviting them into those issues of life. So, Jesus, how are we going to pay these bills together? Jesus, how are we going to deal with this health issue? Jesus, how are we going to deal with this relationship problem? Jesus, how are we going to deal with this problem at work? Lord, how do you, what do you want to make for dinner tonight? It sounds simple again, but that's the crux of it. Being consumed with the life of Jesus. Because as we said, as we saw earlier this morning, wherever you go, whatever you're doing, you're face to face with Him. And His love is there towards us. It's the best place to be. Let's pray. Father, this new covenant is powerful. It's incredible because it's given us freedom. You've you've covered all the bases. You've made it all possible. You've forgiven us. You've rescued us. You've redeemed us. You've made us brand new. We're completely different. We've been set free simply to be free. But there is a war still going on. A battle for our souls. A battle that you're not asking us to fight on our own. A battle that you're fighting on our behalf. You're simply asking us to trust you. 
So I pray as we leave here tonight, we will rejoice in the fact that we are one new person with a new nature that is truly holy, truly righteous and perfect and complete. That we have everything we need in you. And that we'd be, our thoughts would begin to be consumed with who you are in us and who you are to us. We praise your name. Amen. Let's turn to number 567, 567.